Good morning, everyone. As I was listening to that song, the lyrics and watched Josiah just bang on those drums, I was reminded of a thought that Chuck Swindoll once shared about a jazz um, pianist, I think he was, who played a particular song. And after playing that song, and after we sang this song, if that don't turn you on, you ain't got no switches. <laughs> I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus said to those on that hillside, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there and before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at, the, at law while you are on the way, or with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid every last cent. Let's uh, pray as we begin our study this morning. Thank you, Father, for songs of praise and worship. Thank you, Father, for times of fellowship and times of study of your word. I pray, Father, as we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it will impact our lives for your glory and for our good. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The children's Sunday school lesson was almost complete. It was taken from the Gospel of Matthew, ironically. And it was one of those times when the Pharisees confronted Jesus in a rather hostile way. They were critical of what he was doing and let him know how upset they were with him. So as the teacher finished the lesson... She closed by saying, now boys and girls, let's thank God that we're not like those mean old Pharisees. We know what to think of Pharisees. They're the bad guys. But I assure you that those listening to Jesus on that hillside thought no such thing. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were viewed as pillars of Jewish society and religion. This is an individual who was highly respected. In the eyes of good and decent people, Pharisees were religious 
and moral successes. That's why when listening to Jesus say that your righteousness must surpass those of the Pharisees, they were shocked. That's absurd. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law made obedience the passion of the obedience to the law, the passion of their life. They prayed, they fasted, they tithed, they lived according to the rules. They calculated that the law had 248 commandments and 364 prohibitions, and they tried to keep them all. How could anyone surpass that? Isn't that what righteousness is all about? Being in compliance to the law? But Jesus is saying that, not that we must do better than that. He was saying that our righteousness must be more than just external. They thought religious performance was what Scripture revealed. The goal for them was keep the law. But they'd lost sight of the inside-outside principle. More than just the outside, the external what counts, it's what's inside us. The demand for inward integrity as well as outward conformity. Remember when uh, Samuel went to uh, select a new king and God directed him to David? And and Samuel was skeptical of that, and God said to him, man looks on the outside appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's law is different from man's law. According to an old Puritan proverb, man's law binds the hands only. God's law binds the heart. In this verse, which many believe is the key to the Sermon on the Mount, God is going to point that what is most important is who we are rather than what we do. Who we are on the inside and the heart is more important than what we do. And he begins that process in chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus is going to give us six examples that show the need for one's righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These examples demonstrate the priority of the internal over the external, of relationships over rules. Six times, Jesus will say, you have heard, it was said, but I tell you. Some people look at those words and think that Jesus is in the process of making some changes to the law, of the understanding of the law, and that's not the case at all. He is going to be contrasting what the Pharisees and the rabbis taught with what the true intent of the law was. Those words you have heard alert us to the fact that they had no Old Testament scriptures, uh, no New Testament scriptures. What folks learned, they learned by listening. When they attended the synagogue, there would be folks who would read various passages of Scripture. Then someone would get up and interpret those passages using what was known as the oral traditions. So Jesus couldn't assume that everything the people heard concerning the content of the Old Testament was really accurate. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw some of these oral traditions as having just as much authority as the Old Testament Scriptures. Even though they might be simply inaccurate or misleading, they were held uh, incessantly. So in each of the examples that Jesus is going to give us, he addresses the remainder in the remainder of this chapter. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, he's going to say not what the law said, but what they'd heard it had said. 
their understanding of it. In the first case, Jesus uh, goes to the, uh, the law to Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. And what he's going to explain to his readers is that anger lies at the heart of murder. The Hebrew language has uh, about eight words for killing. This one was selected uh, specifically because of its intent. Because it talked about premeditated murder. The premeditated uh, taking of an innocent life. The deliberate killing of a personal enemy. We might translate it, you shall not kill unlawfully. But you'll notice that they also enter, uh, uh, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That wasn't part of the law. That was taken from Numbers chapter 35, verses 30 and 31. In adding the consequences to the law, they moved it from a moral issue to a civil issue. The consequences. Guilty before the court. There are some that were in that audience that day who thought, great, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm home free. Preach it. But Jesus wasn't allowed that. But I tell, say this to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Don't murder with an angry heart. Stop the violence. What the rabbis taught was that one could keep the sixth commandment as long as they didn't commit murder. But Jesus goes beyond that prohibition. The act of murder comes from an attitude in the heart. Clearly, Jesus is describing anger that goes beyond the proper bounds. The word for anger here is a slow, meditative anger. The anger that we nurse to keep alive. It was the anger that plots to get even, to get back. It's like the words that one author used to describe a character in his book. This, cap, this character was said, according to the author, he spoke with a good deal of animation about skinning you with a blunt knife. It's a smoldering anger that's bent on vengeance. You love to see someone get what they deserve. And Jesus says when you have that kind of anger in your heart, that's the first stage of anger. Jesus is going to say that you are guilty before the court. You are subject to judgment. Now, someone in the back, there's no one in the back going to raise their hand, but someone in the back might raise their hand and say, Wisdom, didn't Jesus get angry? That lets me off the hook. And they're right. Jesus did get angry. You remember the occasions? There was a merchandisers in the temple People came on various festivals. They came without animals to sacrifice, and they sold them sacrificial animals with a jacked-up price and other things. It was a merchandising event, and Jesus was angry. He tipped over the tables. Then there was the occasion where Jesus was angry with those who were legalistic and hypocritical about his healing on the Sabbath. And then there's a whole section in Matthew 23 uh, focused on the Pharisees. He calls them, you blind fools. He's angry. Jesus is guilty of inconsistencies. No, he's not. When Jesus was angry, he was angry at sin and injustice and ministry issues. 
nothing personal. In fact, when Jesus was uh, tried, when he was arrested and tried and beaten and insulted, Peter said when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He became angry, not at personal insults or attacks. <laughs> and when he went to the cross, Luke tells us that he looked at those who had put him on the cross and said to them, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus wasn't angry about personal attacks, but his angry was about sin and injustice. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. For me, it's religious leaders and televangelists who use their platform to raise money and power. For me, it's when God's word and God's will is clearly disobeyed by God's people. For me, it's a billion dollar, a B billion dollar industry, industry that promotes porn and seeks to destroy marriages and families. For me, it's abortion, the killing of babies. For me, it's the abuse of spouses, the abuse of children. And for me, it's the newest evil in an assault against children straight from the pit of Gehenna, asking them to be sure about their identity without their parents' consent or knowledge. And the list goes on. Evil angers me. So there is a place for appropriate, justified anger. But for us, the problem usually is a personal issue. We are attacked, and we become angry. What Jesus is saying, the murder goes beyond a physical act. It goes to the heart. It goes to who you are. And often it comes out in what you say. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. Don't murder with lethal lips. Stop the violence. Those words, you good for nothing, come from an Aramaic term, raka, which means empty or empty-headed. Today we might call the person an airhead, a nitwit, a blockhead, and we could go on, but we won't. It's not spoken in jest. It's an insult. You are a mentally worthless idiot. It's hate-filled. It's a put-down, denigration, expression of anger, and perhaps murderous intent, and that person deserves his day in court, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. So we take our words and use them like bullets. Their value is a person. Jesus says it's a murder. You murder with anger in your heart. The 
The second says, whoever says you are a fool shall be guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. The word fool comes from the word moros or moron. But it doesn't mean someone who is dumb. It means someone who has lived as if there is no God. They are morally and spiritually corrupt. Reminds us of the words in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And when you think that about a person or call someone that, you are making a judgment because you have determined that that person is morally wasted. And what happens? You will be in danger of fiery hell. Please don't put words in Jesus' mouth. He's not saying that's where they're going, but that's what they deserve. Will you notice the gradation of the judgments? He's not saying that one is worse than the other. He's using a a rabbinic method of teaching. He's piling on the consequences of these evil words. Use words, you attack a person's mental ability. Use words to talk about their moral integrity. We break the sixth commandment with our words. This means when we use angry words, when we put people down, when we whisper about their reputation, you assassinate another's character with lethal lips. We can use our tongue like a razor and cut somebody up. We have murder in our hearts. According to the book of Proverbs, rash words are like sword thrusts, which is another way of saying we can use our words as murder weapons. Jesus is saying a lot more about violence than it happens with your hands. It's a matter of the heart. And since Jesus says that's true, he said we need to do everything as we can as quickly as we can to make matters right when angry words have broken a relationship. And he gives us two illustrations of how that might work. And he says in verses 23 to 26, reconciliation is both essential and urgent. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, There, remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. Will you notice the word first? If you mark in your Bible, will you underline that or circle it? A first priority is you make right a wrong. You have behaved badly, poorly. You have offended a brother or a sister. They hold an offense against you. And the scenario goes something like this. Yesterday, you took what Ashley sends us, the midweek update, and you looked at the songs. Maybe you knew some of them, maybe you didn't. But you went and listened to the songs to know what we'd be singing today. You looked at the passage of Scripture. You read it over several times. Then you prayed. God, tomorrow will you be glorified? 
in our service. Will you be lifted up? Will you be magnified? You set out the clothes that you're going to wear this morning or the, the next morning because you didn't want to be, you know, hassled, trying to figure out what you're going to wear. You set your alarm and you woke up this morning. You had breakfast, you had plenty of time. You got dressed, got ready to come to church, you drove, you found a parking spot, you had plenty of time. You spoke with the greeters on your way in. Folks in the foyer, I never, foyer, what does that word mean? Anyway, the hall. Uh, and you spoke with friends and folks you knew there. Mark had finished his lesson, the class was leaving, and you came in and you found your assigned seat. We do have assigned seats, you know. <laughs> you sat down and you greeted those around you, people you hadn't seen. It was a great time of fellowship. Brian and the worship band began our worship time. Tanner came up and in his wonderful ability shared in prayer and the announcements. And then the worship band and Brian came up again and they began to lead us in song. And it was a song that you knew so you Worshipped, you closed your eyes, and but, but suddenly the words of the song weren't there. On the memory screen of your mind was the face. It, it was a face of that person who you had wronged this past week. And God was saying to you, you need to go and make this right. He said, no, God, I, I'll call him this afternoon. He said, no, 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 no. You go and make it right. I don't want too many of you to get up and leave. <laughs> but the psalmist tells us, if you have cherished sin in your heart, the Lord will not listen. And this is the first, one of the first and only times that I know of that we're allowed to interrupt worship, to go and make it right. Reconciliation is important because of hostile feelings. Left unresolved, you cannot worship God. Second example is a legal situation. In the ancient world, you could default on your debts, and if that was the case, you could be thrown into prison. <laughs> Not a great place to raise money to pay off your debt. So Jesus said, you need to take care of it quickly. And that's the point. The urgency of resolving the problem. Murder comes from anger in the heart and speech. It can ruin relationships. And Jesus says, you need to make those right. Back in 1931, one of America's most wanted fugitives was Two-Gun Crowley. Two-Gun was charged with a string of brutal murders, including police killings. That spring, he was finally captured in a shootout in his girlfriend's apartment. When the police searched him, they found a blood-spattered note that read, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. Two-Gun was wrong. 
His heart wasn't kind. He did want to do somebody hard harm, and he did. If we're not careful, we may be guilty of committing what the Reformation, Reformation theologian John Calvin said was murder in the heart. The issue of murder goes beyond the physical act of violence. Murder can occur in your heart. So what Jesus is doing is explained to his disciples on that hillside long ago and to disciples here this morning. What surpassing righteousness means, it means it's more important who you are than what you do. Righteous acts must come from a righteous heart. It's a matter of the heart, and that's why Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. In closing, let me just offer some observations about anger. First of all, anger is a God-given emotion. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be angry, yet do not sin. It's a God-given emotion, but don't allow it to cause you to sin. We talked about righteous anger earlier, and that kind of anger is what we might say is, is acceptable because it doesn't include me. Anger is a God-given emotion. Anger is an alarm. I've owned a few cars over the years, and on the dashboard of those cars would be lights or gauges. Occasionally one would come on, gauge would go, that's annoying. But you continue to drive at your own peril. Anger is an alarm. Be aware of it. Don't let anger act, thirdly. Commit yourself to not allow anger either to act or to speak. American statesman Thomas Jefferson in his Rules for Life had this plan. When angry, count to 10 before you speak. When very angry, count to 100. I'm not sure what you need to develop. But don't let your anger act. Next, and maybe most importantly, admit to yourself that you have an anger problem. Don't slough it off. Ah, my dad was angry. It's in my genes. No. No. Don't buy that. Allow God to do work in your heart. Change your angry disposition. Tanner mentioned that Regen graduation is this Tuesday. If you have an issue that you're struggling with, if, if anger is a problem, I'd encourage you to prayerfully consider coming on Tuesday. It's open to everyone. And to hear how God has worked in the hearts and lives of people in this discipleship-based ministry that, that impacts people with issues they're struggling with. If that's not possible, consider the next go-around, which I believe the sign-up will be in August. It's a great ministry. It help, has helped a number of people. Next, recognize the consequences of angry outburst. We've been told that sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt us. That's a lie. 
As I mentioned earlier, according to Proverbs, rash words are like sword thrusts, which is another way of saying our words can be used as weapons. They can ruin relationships. Finally, nurture and value your relationships. I find it interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling people into a relationship with him that will impact their relationship with others. In each of these six issues that we will talk about, these six examples, people are involved, relationships are involved. Anger and harsh words lead to a broken relationships. But Jesus teaching that repairing relationships is both essential and urgent. Reconcile with your brother or sister quickly. That's why Jesus said, first be reconciled. I don't think it's uh, a coincidence that today of all days we will focus on the value of authentic community. I hope you got a chance to look at that slide. We believe the church is not a place, but a family. We believe the relationship with Christ cannot be separate from our relationship with one another. Therefore, we are devoted to showing mercy, extending grace, and building up one another in love. I can assure you that for the leadership of this church, that, are, that is more than just words on a piece of paper. That is the passion of their heart. We are in a relationship that flows out of our relationship with Jesus. We need to do everything to nurture and value those relationships. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' sermon. We thank you, Lord, for the impact that it has on our lives. May we be people who understand that the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of Pharisees is more than just outward acts, but it's the heart that counts so much. That out of the heart flows our acts of worship and praise and service. Father, help us to be ever mindful of the words we speak Help us to nurture and value the relationships that we have. And if in some case our relationship is broken, we might first and foremost make it right. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just maybe, just maybe, there's someone in your sphere of influence that you need to make things right. I'd urge you to do it again for your good and God's glory. The sermon teaches us that out of our relationship with Jesus flows our relationship with others. As we nurture and value our relationship with Jesus, that will impact how we nurture and value our relationship with others. Father, we are grateful for the chance to worship. Help us never take it for granted. Father, I pray for each of us as we leave this place and go to uh, our
work, our school, our home, our neighborhood, whatever it might be, that in the words of Paul, we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, make an impact for you in this generation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.